Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We're continuing in a series from the book of Acts that we've titled Power Today, and the message today is the faith that isn't. The faith that isn't. Now, this is a very interesting passage as you come to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to pick it up in verse 9, because it's the first of several conf confrontations with sorcerers. So in Acts 9, you have Simon the sorcerer. Then you have, and we get a word in our, in our English language, simony is where you're trying to buy favors, spiritual favors with money. So it's called simony after him. Acts 13, Eliamus Bar-Jesus. Remember, Paul strikes him with blindness. Acts 16, a slave girl possessed by a python spirit. I mean, that is one crazy story when you, when you read about it. And then Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva, and a demon jumps on them and beats them and, and sends them running naked and bleeding. It's uh, three or four stories that are very interesting. This morning, we're going to look at Simon the Sorcerer. He's a man who had faith, but it wasn't saving faith. Here's what's interesting. He believed, the Bible says. He was baptized. He followed Philip. On the surface, it looked great. But in the end, we find he wasn't saved. This is a very poignant message for everybody who hears this word today. Because honestly, I think that one of the primary concerns of any godly pastor is that there would be people in the church who would be unconverted. People who attend the church, they're a part of the church, but they're not born again. They might even think they're going to heaven, they might talk about heaven, but there's no holiness in their life. They made a, maybe made a decision to follow Christ, but they're not really a disciple. They're not a learner. They're not a follower. Never read their Bible. Never spend time with the Lord. The, Jesus is not Lord of their life. He doesn't win any ties in their life for the most part. Or they claim to have faith and there's no fruit in their life. Every pastor has this concern for the souls of people. A.W. Tozer, the great preacher in the mid-1950s, writes this, or said this in a sermon, it's my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and they have not been saved. Now listen, what he's saying here is there's a lot of people who think because they experienced the presence of Christ and they responded to that, that they're saved, but they've not been saved. He says, if your Christian conversion did not reverse the direction of your life, if it did not transform it, then you're not converted at all. In other words, like the old children's Sunday school song, if you're saved and you know it, then your life should surely show it. You say, well, how does this happen to a person? I mean, how do I know? And what happened to Simon? 
as we look at the message today or the passage today, we're going to see four characteristics of a false faith. Four characteristics of a false faith. Number one, a false faith has an egotistical view of self. This is something I believe that keeps a lot of people from salvation. They have a wrong view of humanity. They have a wrong view of themselves. They think human beings are inherently good. Human beings are not inherently good. People are born sinners. They don't become a sinner when they sin. They're born sinners, which is why they sin. That cute little baby in the cradle is a massive sinner, the proof of which is when they get angry, if they were your size, you'd be finished. <laughs> People are born sinners. They're not inherently good, though there are some people who have a goodness about them more than others. Humanity is not inherently good. All you have to do is look at the history of humanity to see the truth of that. The Bible says this, Romans 3 and verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. And people have a tendency, if they don't think humanity is good, people have a tendency to think of themselves as good. Or maybe we could say as good enough. They have the idea, well, because I go to church or because I, I give to certain causes, because I give to the United Way, I give to the church, I, I do this, I do that, I help my neighbor. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. If you read James 2, James says, demons believe and tremble. You can believe in Jesus and not be saved. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 13, Jesus is telling the parable of the sower and the soils. The sower is the preacher, the seed is the word of God, the soil is the human heart. He gives us four different kinds of soil. The second kind of soil, the seeds on the rocky soil, represent those who hear the message, receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. Mark puts it this way, when they face trouble, when they face persecution. Luke and Mark say on the third soil, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the seed. The idea is the person who believes and receives is not a Christian if they don't persevere. The proof of your salvation is not that you made a decision. The proof of your salvation is that you're serving Jesus actively. They went out from us because they were not of us, John says. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. In other words, there are a lot of people who are, in this scripture, temporary converts. James puts it this way, James chapter 2, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? What's the answer? No! Listen, you can say all day, you're a Christian, but if your life doesn't back it up, you're not. That's what he's saying. You don't have a saving faith because it's not what you call yourself, it's how you live. 
Simon believes, but he believes for all the wrong reasons. Let's look at it, verse 9, Acts 8. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery. The word, and we won't get into all of it, but it's a cognate form of the word, and uh, Luke uses it because essentially what he's saying is the dude is a quack. So Luke is putting the finger on him. A, a, a reader of the Greek would understand that. It's not as obvious in our English translations. For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed. This word amazed is used often in the passage. The whole thing, the whole thing about Simon's faith is he's amazed. He's amazed because he's trying to figure out how can I incorporate the, what Philip's doing into my shtick so I can continue to fool people. He practiced sorcery in the city, amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. It's all about him. Filled with pride. We, we know that, and I kind of give away the end of the story because what, what church history tells us he did, and there was actually a, a place in Rome, an idol that was named Simon Sancto Deo. Simon, the Holy One. Simon, the Holy God. I mean, this guy, he's got an ego. He thinks he's God. He hasn't quite gotten there, but he's on his way. He came to God. Not because he needed God to do for him what he could not do for himself. He came for other motives. In verse 9, he's a very proud person. He boasts. You know, honestly, pride keeps a lot of people from coming to God. Pride makes people think, I'm not that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as a lot of people I know or as I see on the news. And the good things I do ought to be good enough for God. That's pride. Did you know that pride's the biggest sin of all? Not adultery, not murder, but pride. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 in the Amplified, these six things the Lord hates, indeed seven are an abomination to him, and the very first one is a proud look. It's the biggest of all sins, and the proof of that is it's pride that made the devil the devil. In fact, let me just say this. This is a strong statement, but it's true. It would be better to be filled with demons than filled with pride. You can cast out demons, but what do you do with somebody who's got pride? When someone's full of themselves, how do you, I mean, how do you cast that out? So here's Simon. He's a very proud person, and his ego's fed by the people. Look at it in verse 10. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. I mean, they're saying, he's God. And they followed him because he had amazed them. See, everybody's amazed at everything. And this is not as some people might want to say, well, see, that's the problem with signs. No, the problem is not with signs. The problem is with pride. The problem is people is with people who are frauds. The problem's not with real miracles because real miracles bring tons of people to Christ. Luke makes this point throughout the book of Acts. But they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. So again, Luke's telling us there's a lot of 
of sham stuff going on here with Simon, but he's good at it. And he's proud. Listen, here's the thing. As long as a person thinks they are good enough, they can never know true salvation. The person who comes to God is the one who is humble. And humility is not saying, oh, I'm nothing. Humility is depending upon God and saying, God, on my own, I can't make it to heaven unless I receive what you through your son Jesus did for me on the cross. And I'm putting my faith in him, believing he did for me what I could never do for myself and knowing that unless I do that, I'll never make it to heaven. You know what keeps a lot of people though from making that decision? Pride. Afraid what other people will think. Afraid of, of how it's going to look. Afraid of being labeled one of those Jesus kooks. Afraid of whatever it is you're afraid of. Afraid of what your spouse will say, what your family will say, what your friends will say. Afraid of losing your freedom. Afraid of giving up something, which I don't know what you could ever get up, give up that would be worth more than Christ. In terms of salvation, Humility is saying, God, on my own, I will never be good enough. I'll never be righteous enough to get into heaven. And that's why I'm putting my faith in you to help me do something I could never do on my own. But proud people will never do that. Listen, I, I'm going to throw the ball right across the plate. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I'm not going to leave anything to chance. If you've heard the gospel and you've not responded, it's because pride has filled your heart. And you don't think it's that big a deal to give your heart to Christ. And you have to understand the damnable nature of pride. Of all the things God detests, pride's number one. Because pride keeps people from experiencing the goodness and the blessing of God, starting with salvation. This is why James says, God opposes the proud. He holds the proud at arm's length. You want God to hold you at arm's length? Just be proud and say, no, thank you. I don't need your help. I don't need your help on salvation. I don't need your help on heaven. In fact, I'm not even sure I need your help tomorrow with anything I'm doing. God, I think I've got it. And God says, okay, I'm going to hold you at arm's length, but he gives grace to the humble. Number two, false faith not only has an egotistical view of self, but false faith has an external view of salvation. Look at it, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So here's Philip. He preaches the gospel. When people have seen the signs and wonders, now they're listening to him. He gives them the gospel. Faith rises in their heart. They believe. And would you notice they're baptized? Let me just say this. The constant example in the book of Acts. So forget where you're from, what your background is. Everybody's got to decide, am I going to be true to the word of God or am I going to be true to my tradition? And for some people, baptism, that's, it's, the enemy loves to use tradition to keep people from experiencing God's blessing. Man, I remember when I got saved, they were like, you need to be baptized. I was like, oh. You know, this shows you what kind of person I was. I was like, man, I'm ahead of you. I was already baptized. Little baby, sprinkle the water. I've got that covered. And that's what I did. That's what I said. And they're like, what? I was like, I've been baptized. 
And they would tell me, you need to be baptized. I was like, no, I don't. And I knew what it'd be for my parents. I remember the time I told my, my dad I was gonna get baptized. He was like, you already been baptized. It's like, well, that's what I told them, but no. <laughs> by that point, I'd been convinced by the scripture. Because the scripture is really clear that you get saved and then you get baptized. Here's Simon, he's watching all of this and he sees what the people are doing. And so verse 13, and this, this verse fools a lot of people because they, they just look at it on the surface, they don't read the rest of the story. Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. He's, again, this whole thing's about amazement. Wow, how can I learn to do what you're doing? Because if I add that to my deal, I am even a greater power in the view of people. Don't let this believed and baptized fool you. Because the proof of salvation is not just that you came forward and were baptized. The proof of salvation is how you live after that. In verse 12, everyone's getting saved. So in verse 13, Simon's going to get saved. He's not changing his life. He's keeping up with the crowd. He's not motivated by his need for salvation from sin. He's trying to figure out how to incorporate Philip's miracles into his own shtick. So here he is, and, and he's doing all this, and, and, and he has no plans to change. And he doesn't understand something about salvation. I'm gonna, you know, I realize I'm saying some things that we haven't talked a lot about, but they are true, and they are super important. And it just hasn't come up in the text, so I'm adding them here. You have to understand, it's not an easy thing to be saved. Jesus said this, listen to this, Luke 13. He went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? He replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter, but will fail. Look at, look at the phrase, work hard. Work hard to enter the narrow door. For many will try, but will fail. Work hard, make every effort, the, new, or the NIV says. King James says, strive. The Greek uses the word agonizomai. It's, it's the idea, agonize to get in. You see, when you're coming into the kingdom, it's a narrow door. Which means you can't come in with all your luggage, you know, all the things you want to carry in with you, you know, like, well, uh, I want to take this habit and I want to take this person and I want to take this activity. No, you, you get rid of all that. You set aside everything for the joy, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring, the hymnist said, only to the cross I cling. You don't bring anything. You don't bring any people. Don't bring any, you, you don't bring anything. You bring yourself and you say, Jesus, I'm trading everything for you. And what's interesting is, as you're getting ready to make that, you think you're giving up so much only to find after you actually do it, what you gave up was nothing in comparison to everything he gives you. Now I'm gonna use an earthly illustration, but it's biblical. 
Paul says in Philippians 3, everything I gave up to follow Christ. I was really proud of it. I really thought it was something, and I really thought I was something. But I gave it all up only to realize when I look back that what I thought was everything and so valuable was really just a pile of poop. I mean, that's, that's shocking. I didn't write it. Paul did. But that's what it is. The Greek word is skubalon. It's sewage. My whole life was about sewage, is what Paul's saying till I met Christ. And I found out he's worth more than everything I valued. And I really began to understand what's truly valuable in life when I met Christ, right? Well, let's move on here. A false faith has an economic view of the Spirit. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, and they're going to verify the work. And in verse 15, we read this. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So talking about the Holy Spirit at salvation, he lives in you. But what they're talking about is the Holy Spirit coming upon you, empowering you. So it's two different works of the Spirit. And how important is the baptism of the Holy Spirit if the instant they hear people are saved, they're like, uh, we, we want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've come to pray for you. In fact, Paul, when he meets people in Acts 19, when he, right when he meets them, he says, he finds out he thinks they're Christians. They actually aren't, but he thought they were. And he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, we didn't even know there was one. But then he's like, oh, time out. You've, you've somewhere, you missed... You missed the whole gospel. And so he takes them back, tells them about Jesus. They get baptized. He prays for them. And they receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same idea here. In verse 17, it says, when Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands. So what is he seeing? Even people who don't believe tongues are for today. Commentators say he saw people speaking in tongues. And when they saw people in the prayer language, so Peter and John are touching them, they're, they're getting a prayer language, then Simon sees that, and he's like, oh, wow, I gotta have that. How much is that gonna cost? How much do I need to pay so I can do what you guys are doing? Look at it in verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Give me, I want my hands to do it. I want to be a part of this. He thought the Holy Spirit, he thought the move of God, he thought the blessing of God was something a person could buy, but God's work is not for sale. Acts 8, verse 20, Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Here's what the message, and both the message, uh, J.B. Phillips and some others translate this. This is really what the text is saying. Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. I mean, you and you along with it, that's why, un that's unthinkable, trying to buy God's gift. 
Now, this is a major indication of where he stands. He's not a Christian. And if we doubt it still, watch what happens. And this is the, the final thing. False faith has an easygoing view of sin. Sin's no big deal. If sin isn't a big deal to you, if you're happy with sin in your life and you're tolerating it regularly. So let me, let me again just, and, and some of you don't understand, you might be living a lifestyle that you don't understand is, is sinful because nobody's told you. So let me, let me just, if you're, if you're not married and you're living together, that's sinful. What that means is if you love Jesus, you stop doing that. You say, well, how will we stop doing that? That's where we have pastoral counselors who can help you to discern how to honor God with your life. Not judge you. It's not, it's not about judging. It's saying, hey, we want you to know the joy of Christ. And that means you've got to make some decisions. There are some of you, and you're not living together, but you're sleeping together. And you're doing it all the time, and you're saying, God understands because we love one another. No, he doesn't understand. You're living in sin. You're fornicating is what the Bible calls it. Again, I, you need to understand I'm saying this to you because God has something so much better for you, and everything about the way you're trying to build your relationship is working against a life-giving relationship, and I can tell you all the reasons why that's true. It doesn't work to build a relationship on fornication. It does not work. God's the one who designed us, and he knows exactly how to have a, a life that is that is filled with joy and purpose and peace in his presence, and he has guidelines for relationships. So, I don't know how I got on that, but I did get on that. So, back to verse 21. I really, let me just say this. I, I'm saying it in love. I want you to know God and to know his goodness in your life. What, I, I'm not here to ruin somebody's life. What I'm here to do, though, is to help all of us be challenged to honor God with our life because that's the sweet spot of life. That's where the joy and that's where the blessing and that's where the power and that's where the purpose is and that's where the goodness of God is and, and that's when you have life and life to the fullest, as Jesus said. Well, Chapter 8, verse 21. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Uh, literally, it's your heart's not straight. Your heart's crooked. So here we know he's not a Christian. His heart's not right with God. You say, well, isn't it possible for a Christian to have a time when their heart's not right with God? Absolutely. But the issue is, what will a Christian do when their heart's not right? They'll get it right. They'll repent. They'll turn from sin. They'll make it right. Again, this is, this is why I'm saying if you're happy with your sin and you love your sin or your sinful situation and you're not willing to turn from it, then at least come to the right biblical conclusion. You're not going to heaven when you die because you're not a Christian. I mean, I don't want to give you an illusion that somehow you're going to wind up in heaven 
when very likely you're not if you're happy with your sin and have no plans to change it. Now, you may have been doing this, and you're like, whoa, John, I never heard this before. And I realize for some it's a shocking thing. I think of one couple over at the West Campus. They were living together, and, and um, they went home from church, and she said, I'm not sleeping with you anymore. And I mean, he told me this. He said, that entire week, I was so angry at you. <laughs> Who does he think he is that he can get involved in our bedroom? You know, I mean, that's what he was saying. And he was so angry, and she said, you know what, I'm not going to live with you anymore. He said, well, good luck trying to make it without my money. But she said, I'm going to live for the Lord. And a family in the church helped her so she could make a right decision. And seven months later, the guy who was angry came back to the West Campus and sat in the service and gave his heart to Jesus. And today they're married, got a beautiful family. And they would both tell you that that scenario and that happening was the best thing that ever happened to them in their life. You can't see it where you're at right now, but it's true. It, God is setting you up to do something so amazing, you can't begin to imagine it, but only if you say, Jesus, you're first. Well, he's not saved. On the outside, it appeared he was saved, but Peter, speaking to his true spiritual condition, look at it in verse 22. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive your evil thoughts. So Peter's given him great counsel. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're living in sin, repent, which means turn from it. Doesn't mean say, oh God, I'm sorry. If you don't change, your sorry means nothing. Repentance, in the Greek, the word means to completely turn. You're going this way, now you're going this way. So Peter says, repent. He says, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. That's not a Christian. He held captive, he's in chains. Paul says in Romans 6, we've been set free from sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's not been set free from sin. So he is not a Christian. Notice he's been told to repent. And when a true Christian becomes aware of sin, they repent. He does it. Verse 24, he says, pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed. In other words, he wants other people to do his praying for him. That these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. Well, Simon, there's only one person who can determine that. And that's you, Simon. You see, there's only one person that can determine what happens to you spiritually, and that's you. And that's why every single person who does not receive Christ as their Savior will stand before him, and the books will be opened, the Bible says in Revelation, and the dead who are resurrected at that moment for judgment will be judged according to what was written down in the books. And everybody will give an account. If you weren't a Christian, you're gonna, because you didn't accept Christ's blood that washes away all of your sin, 
then you give an account. You say, oh, but I accepted it. But if you don't live like it, then it wasn't genuine. Let me ask you a question. Here's Simon. He's sad, he's scared, but he's not saved because he didn't have a faith that would save him. I'm gonna ask you a question. You have a faith that'll save you? You say, how do I know? How do I know my faith is real and not like Simon's? And that's a great question to be asking. It's a good question. First of all, Paul says this in Romans, and he says it again in Galatians, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the sons of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're his children. So, you know, if you have a test of, if the Spirit is speaking to your heart, you know, you're my child, I love you, and the Spirit of God is right there. Now, if you're living in open sin, you're not hearing the Spirit, you're hearing something else, which that's even more scary. But second, you have to look at your life. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul is writing this to Christians or people who claim Christ. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. How would you do that? You'd say, well, does my life reflect a love for the Lord? Am I, we're not talking about perfection, but with all of my heart, do I want to honor God, love God, serve God? I mean, who's in charge of my life, me or him? I mean, that, that's what we're, we're talking about here. Look at the product of your life. What do you see? And if there is no sign in the way you live that you are saved, then it's probably because you're not. You've added your life, Christ, to your life. You've just not surrendered your life to him because it's still your life. And the evidence is pretty much you do what you want to do and you you agree with the parts of the Bible you like, you don't agree with the parts you don't like, and you pretty much set yourself up to evaluate, well, do I agree with God on this? Because if I don't, then I don't think I'm gonna do that. Well, you're, he's not God, you're God, you're your own God. I realize this is a very strong message, but I think there's sometimes we just have to cut to the chase and just say, hey, this is the deal, and everybody needs to know it, and you know, I, I, I take a message like this so seriously because honestly, here's what the Bible says. I'm going to give an account for your souls. There's several times in Ezekiel and Jeremiah where God talks about a watchman who's warning the people of what, what, what's happening out there. And God says, if you don't warn the people, then their blood's on your head. So today, I, I have a responsibility as your pastor to tell you the truth, not to tell you what you know you want to hear, but to, help, to tell you what you need to hear and what all of us need to hear. Listen, if, 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 if you feel like a finger is pointing at you, you got three or two and a half pointing back at me, right? Because before I can preach to you, I have to preach to myself. The Lord loves you so much. And if you're not sure if you're a Christian, then today there is nothing more important than taking care of that. For some of you, that means a major rededication. For some, it means laying down your pride and saying, oh, listen, I'm going to give my heart to Christ. 
Maybe, maybe you've never heard the gospel before. You knew it's not a matter of pride. It's just a matter of, hey, you know what? I want to I wanna be born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be saved. He said, no one can go to heaven unless they're saved. And if that's what he says, then what are you going to do with that? I encourage you. For his blessing, his goodness, and his joy to be on your life. Give your heart to him. Rededicate your life to him. Let's bow.